This week on the Backtable Podcast. We've certainly had patients that have had double-digit positive nodes, you know, most of those being microscopic in nature, but in that group of patients that we gave adjuvant chemotherapy to, none of them had recurred. So I think that it's for the ones that get it, I think two cycles is usually enough. Now you could argue, were they cured with the surgery? You don't know because you gave them two cycles of chemotherapy, but it, you know, the ones that were given two cycles, it seemed to be enough to treat if there was microscopic disease, it took care of it. So I think double digit nodes positive, I think that's, we're probably going to offer adjuvant chemotherapy to them. N3 disease in this paper we've been talking about, they seem to do similarly actually to the N1 group, but, but it was a small group of that N3 patient. So it's hard to say for sure. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face, and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests today, Tim Masterson and Clint Carey from Indiana University. I don't think they need any introduction as true world experts at the mecca of testis cancer, which is Indiana. Thanks so much for coming on, Tim and Clint. How are you all doing this evening? We're great, man. Thanks for having us. Doing well. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Aditya. Okay, good. So I thought we could just jump on into it. Today, the topic is retroperitoneal lymph node dissection or RPLND for early stage testicular cancer. And maybe we just kind of jump into stage 1A patients. So these, just for the listenership, are going to be patients that have T1 tumors, no evidence of nodes on their imaging, and no evidence of elevated markers. Are there scenarios where you all are offering or encouraging RPLND for stage 1A patients? I mean, obviously, there's unique circumstances depending on the individual patient. I would say it, for the masses, obviously, they're doing surveillance, right? Could you have a patient that maybe doesn't have access to come and get a surveillance or, or something like that? Sure, that's possible. Maybe they have mostly teratoma and don't have great access to follow-ups and things like that. Just kind of the obvious scenarios, but I would say the majority we're, we're doing surveillance for stage 1A. Yeah. The only consideration I would make is somatic transformation. So if you have a stage 1A patient, but for whatever reason, they have elements of transformed PNED or, or other forms of malignant features, then you would consider it for that, although that's a pretty uncommon scenario. Right. So the AUA early stage testis cancer guidelines, I think, highlight and calls out that clinical scenario which is absent from NCCN and EAU, kind of practice-wise, are you generally promoting that, encouraging that, or is this a consideration? Are you talking about somatic transformation or surveillance? Specifically, RPLND for stage 1A somatic transformation. 
Yeah, I think it's an important aspect. It's similar, you know, one of the issues with germ cell tumors uh, that have somatic transformation is similar to other chemorefractory entities where you can't salvage these patients once they're metastatic. So you're always trying to stay ahead of it when it's the most manageable. And so when you have these chemotherapy resistant entities, you want to try to incorporate surgery at a much earlier time period. So when you see that in the testicle, you have a much higher incidence of seeing it in the retroperitoneum and treating them in the stage one distribution would be their outcomes are much better than when you see it in stage two or stage three disease. And Clint actually did a publication with a group out of Italy where we combined data and they demonstrated that in one of their Kaplan-Meier curves. Okay. So really, if you have a super motivated patient, maybe some outstanding social factors or patient preference or malignant transformation, those are going to be the relatively narrow indication for intervening with surgery in a stage 1A. Is that about fair? Yeah, you brought up something that I think we all see from time to time where everybody processes this cancer diagnosis differently. And so even though a patient may be stage 1A, they just can't deal with the anxiety of surveillance and they want to feel like they're being proactive and you tell them you're going to be fine. Even if you have a relapse, we can deal with it and still cure you. They're very motivated to want to do something. And so we will see those occasionally, but yeah, the majority are most likely going to be surveillance. And what do you typically quote them as a recurrence risk? For stage 1As on surveillance? Mm-hmm. It's going to be low, right? I mean, it's going to be, I don't know, 10%, 15%. Not the, I don't think it's as high as the generic 30% if you don't have these high risk features. I think it's probably going to be lower than that. And what if they have a significant embryonal carcinoma percentage in a stage 1A? Is that going to sway you one way or the other? From my standpoint, not entirely. When you start getting into stage 1B and, and those with embryonal predominance, you do see this aspect of higher incidence of micrometastatic disease that rears itself over time on surveillance where you progress either systemically or in the retroperitoneum. So when you start seeing those higher risk features, when you risk stratify non-seminoma, then you start thinking about a more reasonable scenario where you offer people adjuvant therapy. Adjuvant therapy can be surgery or it could be chemotherapy. Seminoma, uh, when you start talking about risk stratification for that, you're talking about in the 1A setting, you know, a risk of relapse of 5%. So it really makes no sense in that entity for offering adjuvant therapies. But when you have higher risk features, size greater than four centimeters, retitestis invasion, that increases them to 30%. So you're still over-treating 70% of these people. So in the seminoma category, the guidelines appropriately reflect a recommendation for surveillance and avoiding adjuvant therapy for the masses with a few exceptions, compliance issues, things like that. Non-seminoma becomes a little more tricky. So you you start having this shared decision-making process where you say, what's the risk? What's the benefit? It's clear that on surveillance versus using adjuvant therapies, they all do very well, but there's a greater burden of therapy when you go on surveillance and relapse. So some people, when they're trying to avoid chemotherapy at all costs, they'll consider the primary RPLND early. When they're trying to avoid surgery, occasionally you'll get somebody who will go for adjuvant chemotherapy. But adjuvant chemotherapy comes with some risks because we don't know when you start talking about the long-term risks of chemotherapy, does one cycle of BEP, does two cycles of BEP, are those infinitely less risky as far as secondary malignancies, metabolic syndrome, and all these other late sequelae of chemotherapy? 
is that much different or dramatically less than those who relapse on surveillance and get three cycles of BEP and are forced to deal with those long-term side effects because they've relapsed with stage two or stage three disease. So it's always a conversation that you're having with these patients, trying to outline all these nuances between those different strategies and making sure that they understand them. And to some degree, you're walking them off the cliff a little bit because they have a cancer diagnosis that is new for them. And people are always going to inherently want to go in with full court press. But when you talk to them and you say, this is what you need to know, this is the data as far as going with surveillance or others, then you can reorient them. And a lot of those people are more comfortable with surveillance. Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Tim. And clearly, I think stage 1B disease for non-seminoma patients is where there's a lot more variety in opinion. I mean, the Europeans and the Americans, I think, have different philosophical approaches to this. But let's just start out with a 1B patient. Now they've got LVI or some more advanced T-stage. Again, no evidence of metastases, markers have normalized. What's the recurrence risk you're generally kind of explaining to the patients in this context? I think that the highly quoted number is about 50%, right? And that goes up from when you don't have these high-risk features. Personally, I think most of us here at Indiana don't really change the recommendations. I think you can still do surveillance, and I think we've all done surveillance on patients that are 1B, lymphovascular invasion, and brinal predominant. I think sometimes patients can become scared. You know, a 50% chance it's a flip of a coin of, having a relapse, but it doesn't mean that they are any less curable per se. And I think that point gets lost. I think not that it's wrong to do surgery on these patients, but I still present a picture that these are your options. You can still choose whatever fits your lifestyle better. You're not sacrificing your cure rate by picking surveillance or picking one cycle of chemotherapy or picking surgery. They're all, they're all very similar. And so I know the guidelines vary and Doing something sometimes gets recommended a little bit more strongly when we fall into this category. But I think here at Indiana, we're still pretty neutral for the most part, unless, you know, there's some extenuating circumstances. Yeah. I mean, even over the course of my career, I think my enthusiasm for doing true primary RPLND with a truly stone cold clear CT scan has waned. Um, and we can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the nuances where there may be just a little bit of something going on in the retroperitoneum on scans and so forth. But do they see the whole kind of gamut? Are you generally driving this conversation or are they also meeting with a medical oncologist or, or you feel like you're doing the counseling and that's generally pretty, pretty adequate? Yeah. Well, there, there are a few circumstances currently. There are clinical trials with biomarkers out there that we're enrolling these patients into with stage one seminoma and non-seminoma. So that at our location, that clinical trial is organized by our medical oncologist. So I pretty much get our oncologist, Dr. Nabil Adra, to see all of my stage one patients. So they do have an opportunity to talk about adjuvant therapies in the stage one setting pretty regularly from both a medical oncologist and a urologic oncologist. I think they get a pretty realistic view from a multidisciplinary standpoint when they are counseled in these regards? Yeah, for me, when I have patients that are actually really interested in pursuing a primary RPLND, I'll almost try to confirm and mandate that they see a medical oncologist as well, just to really hear out all their options to have it kind of balanced. I would just add, if anything, it's just what I've noticed is just like with anything, you, you hear it more than once. It, I think it helps them see some clarity with whatever decision they're going to do. So it may be that we're telling them the exact same information and we have such a good relationship with our oncologist here that 
probably the way we approach it is very similar. So they're probably hearing two very similar consultations, but I think it just helps them hear it a second time, process it through. Maybe it was said in a different way that rings true to them to help make a decision. So I, I think there's value in when you have medical oncologists that are experienced and understand the disease to have them see as many people as you can. And are there patients that you actually discourage from considering primary pill and D, you know, previous groin surgery, undescended testicle, scrotal surgery along the way, or, or is that not really factoring in here? It's a good question. And number one, not everybody remembers or reports that they've had some sort of surgery like that, depending on the situation. I don't know. I don't, probably don't discriminate. I mean, I know that we, we all know that this can change the flow of the lymphatics and maybe a higher pelvic nodal recurrence or something like that. But I, I have not limited people's options if they want to do it where you have never had to have surgery in that region before. Yeah, I would say something similar. Sometimes, I mean, you go back to histology of the primary tumor and you take into consideration what is present. If you have somebody that has embryonal carcinoma purely or components of yolk sac tumor without teratoma, it's oftentimes, you know, I don't get terribly excited about operating on those patients. You could argue that if they have a component of teratoma, if there is retroperitoneal relapse, there's a greater need for needing surgery down the road and you can rationalize those things. But when it comes down to educating them and saying, should we or should we not operate, it's all semantics. And there's a lot of other, I think, more important factors that come down to it when you talk about it. And a lot of times, even in the high risk setting, when you say somebody's got embryonal predominance and lymphovascular invasion, and they focus on this 50% relapse rate, you also, the thing that a lot of times this light bulb goes on when you say, well, yeah, but there's a 50% chance that you've been cured alone by just removing the testicle. And then all of a sudden they're like, I never really thought about it that way. And so you can really put a lot of people at ease and alleviate that desire to want to do everything right now. Yeah. And maybe on the flip side of that, say, for instance, they've got a significant choriocarcinoma percentage where they may have a higher risk of hematogenous spread where you go in and do surgery and maybe they sprout a lung met, either metachronous lung met several months down the way. Is that playing into it at all or not really? Not really. I'd say if anything, you're going to push them more towards surveillance because if they knew, if they do relapse, they're going to need more important chemotherapy and doing one or two cycles of adjuvant therapy may be inadequate for them. And so you're probably more likely to push them towards surveillance. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my thought process is there is a real risk of either skip metastases. It's not through the roof, obviously, but it's there or having synchronous retroperitoneal and pulmonary metastases. All right. So we talked a bit about the patient-specific factors as well as the tumor components. What about markers? So we'll walk through these with, with some chip shots. LDH, is that factoring into your decision-making at all? I don't know about them, but I don't even check it. I don't, I don't even draw LDH. Yeah, I agree. There was actually, there's some good data that's coming out of Toronto where they looked at their series of patients over maybe 10 or 15 years. And they looked at the role of LDH and sort of decision-making in the clinical stage one setting. And it was falsely elevated in the majority of those patients. So if you're using that as a beacon for what to or what not to do, you're going to, you're going to make the wrong decision or the inappropriate decision based on that and the majority of circumstances. Yeah, I feel like many times AFP, so I, I would totally agree. I think most people that deal with some decent volume of germ cell tumor testis cancer 
don't put a lot of stock in LDH in early stage. What about AFP? Seems like AFP is always a bit of a cause of consternation. AFP is 12, 15. Does that get you excited or not excited? Yeah. Larry Einhorn has championed this AFP of 25 number. And actually, the, the normal values at Indiana University are 0 to 25 for AFP. And so we wouldn't be that excited about that. Obviously, you got to put that in context, right? So like I've had patients that I've operated on, they do have an AFP of 10 or 12 or 15, but every single time they've had it drawn, it was 10 or 12 or 15. It didn't change before or after their orchiectomy. And obviously, if you started at 7 and then it went to 10 and then it went to 15 and 20, like that's more concerning, right? That's kind of a trend towards the wrong direction. If you're headed towards a pre-op surgery evaluation, I mean, that's going to get you a little bit less enthusiastic, but kind of depends on the context. But no, these kind of marginal numbers, 10 to 15, we don't get too excited about them in the right context. Just to add an anecdote to that, I saw a patient that had been treated in an adjacent state and he came over to see me because he had a large groin mass, which for the most part was just a post-operative hematoma that never really resolved. But his post-orchiectomy markers remained in the 17 to 21 range as far as his alpha feta protein. And we kind of just decided to just trend that because it was well within that, it was below that 25 value and it has never changed. And I followed him for his entire length of his surveillance over five years and it never budged. It was 17, 18 repeatedly. So you can have high AFPs and, and it's just, it's kind of like the trends with PSA with prostate cancer. How does the PSA change over time? What are the kinetics of that? And that, I think that's a much more important role. And so that threshold of being less than 25 has proven relatively true for our patients over the 14 years I've been there. Yeah, I think you bring home a couple of important points. I mean, establishing a trend, you know, low stable is obviously comforting. Rising is problematic. People may have their individual baselines. And then, you know, I think part and parcel of that is certainly to track their tumor markers until they nadir. I had a patient who had pure yolk sac tumor. His uh, AFP was 5,000. Scans were all negative. We trended it for about three months and it normalized that he never recurred. It could be easy to imagine a scenario where he would be treated probably inappropriately, not only in an adjuvant format, but likely for good or intermediate risk disease potentially. Okay, so that's perfect for AFP. And what about HCG? So our, our value here is less than, I think, five. And I think it's a similar kind of conversation. I mean, obviously, another important point of HCG, obviously, is marijuana, right? So you got to ask about that if you have these kind of low elevations of HCG. But, you know, marijuana is not going to make someone's HCG be 500. It is usually a kind of that low elevation. And, And you can, you know, obviously have the guys stop smoking marijuana and come back and check it. Another consideration with HCG is hypogonadism. So I actually... I remember this patient when I was chief resident at the county hospital and there was a patient that had come in, not exactly clinical stage one scenario, but he had had testis cancer in the past and hadn't been followed up for years and came, he got referred back for an elevated HCG and it was maybe 20 or something like that and just didn't make sense. His scans were normal and he was far enough out where he would have been a pretty late relapse to have something like that and checked his testosterone. It was low. We gave him a injection of testosterone and had him come back and repeat his blood work and his HCG had normalized. So a couple caveats to 
these mildly elevated HCGs that would just keep on the radar. But in general, you know, obviously, again, with trending, trending things out is the key there. And if they are a 1S, is that pretty much a contraindication for, you know, if their markers are actually rising and you don't see anything on their scans, is that pretty much a contraindication for upfront surgery from your all's perspective? Yeah, I think you've got two publications in press that are pretty much conclusive that elevation and rising markers tends to reflect a systemic process, not a retroperitoneal process. So in these publications, one by a gentleman named Saxman and the other one by a guy named Davis, they both showed high incidences of systemic failure and relapse in patients who were all treated with upfront RPLND. I think that that's the standard. The guidelines all reflect that. And there are pretty few exceptions to that, that I would say that people would consider surgery in the upfront setting. Yeah, I think that's pretty much exactly my takeaway from those papers as well. So maybe now we can jump into the imaging a bit. For staging, are y'all getting a baseline CT scan, chest, abdomen, and pelvis? Yeah, we typically do. Probably, with, you know, you could argue, do you get a chest x-ray instead of a CT of the chest? I think it, it helps kind of put any um, questions to rest at that initial diagnostic imaging studies about is anything in the posterior mediastinum retrocrural area. Certainly, if you're thinking about surgery, you're going to want to know that before bringing them to the operating room. So that's that's kind of what we've been doing. And I'm sure we'll move on to talk about this recent trial with MRI, but I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, I kind of like that too. I mean, you know, you do have your little four millimeter nonspecific pulmonary nodules that you've got to kind of contend with. And I'm curious, what number do you tell patients when they have those little nonspecific lung findings in terms of how prevalent we find these within the general population? Well, gosh, we live in what's called the histo belt, where these are very common, especially in these agricultural communities, these farming communities that we deal with here in the central part of the United States. And gosh, it's probably in younger patients, it's maybe not as common as what we see in our older population for obvious reasons, but it's probably 20 to 30% of them will have small two to three millimeter nodules. But the, it's just like trending markers. You, you know, if you do see them, you're not going to get real excited about them, but you're probably not going to act on anything that's sub-centimeter without demonstrating growth uh, over time. Yeah. I, I don't know what the exact number is of how common they are in this like 18 to 40 year old group, but, but it feels like it's like 90%. I mean, it seems like all the CT scans have something like rarely does it say normal in retrospect. It'd be something that'd be actually interesting to look at, but it feels like it's more than half. You know what I mean? Yeah, actually, Tim, 20% is a number I kind of, to be quite honest, conjured up and generally tell patients to kind of, you know, talk them off the ledge. I've absolutely thought it, about it as well. We're kind of in the process of getting our germ cell tumor database up and running here in San Diego. But would love to work with you all or at least see what your experience has been to, you know, looking at those kind of sub-centimeter pulmonary nodules and how many of them actually translate into recurrences. Well, to Clint's point, that's the value of a chest x-ray is that it's not as sensitive and anything you really need to find from the pulmonary standpoint with metastases, you're going to see on a chest x-ray over time and it avoids some of the nuances of detecting these two to three millimeter nodules. But at the same time, I think a baseline CT scan does give you that reference going forward to see as a comparison, any other imaging that you need if there's concerns for relapse. I don't have any data to just, and thinking back, I mean, out of all the ones that we see, these little nodules, like I don't remember many that have turned into 
relapses in the chest. I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I, I don't think it happens that frequently. Yeah, I, I totally hear you, Tim. And, and the parallels to PSA screening and prostate cancer are kind of resonating here. Like once you kind of have that higher resolution test, you've got to synthesize that information, which can be challenging. Well, I think it'd be a great thing for a fellow or a resident to pick up. I would imagine that's something that's fairly easily extractable from your all's database. Yeah, so a bit more about imaging. So CT scan, abdomen, pelvis, little small. Well, let me back up. Do you like to get imaging when feasible prior to orchiectomy? Any strong opinions on that? Yeah, to some degree, you avoid some of the post-surgical changes that may cause reactionary changes in the retroperitoneum, although it's not overly common. But if I, the problem is, is insurance companies won't approve it if you don't have a diagnosis. So if you don't have elevated markers or anything that definitively identifies them as a germ cell tumor patient, I try to avoid getting imaging pre-op to avoid the hassles and the unnecessary expenses that some patients may come across. So in that circumstance, you know, 50% of patients, we have an opportunity to get them pre-op, but that means 50% we don't. So you know, it's it's just like everything. We're learning more about the subtleties of the retroperitoneum and we're not pulling the trigger at a nine to 10 millimeter nodule. We're being more thoughtful about how those change over time, especially in diseases like seminoma. The guidelines actually reflect those sentiments with these equivocal findings in the 10 to 15 millimeter range. So instead of jumping straight to radiation or chemotherapy, or even now in these days, I'm sure we'll talk about surgery for seminoma, but yeah, I think you can monitor those things. And if they're, if they're reactive, they'll go away. And if not, then you can decide what to do. Yeah, I've pretty much, whether it's stage one or stage two, and again, I've pretty much gone away from surgery. You know, if they've got like a five millimeter rounded node in the primary landing zone, that's got my attention. What I've started doing, and even for stage two patients, many times we'll actually book them out for surgery six, eight weeks, repeat their imaging and markers a week prior. And as long as they haven't met it out, as long as they haven't involuted, they've kind of selected themselves as I think as a reasonable candidate. So I don't know, any, any feedback on that approach? I think one of the things that I would take away with is actually just making sure you have imaging that's relatively close to the time of any intervention that you're going to do. Because, you know, a lot of times, especially for Clint and I, where we're seeing people that are traveling from out of state, there's been some delay and and they're processing getting them to us. So, you know, we're pretty diligent about making sure our scans are not older than four to six weeks at the latest, depending upon the circumstances. Um, if you've got growing teratoma, that's not as important after chemotherapy. But in this setting where they're chemo naive and you're trying to determine the therapeutic value of surgery in the stage one or stage two setting, it's always making sure you have the correct diagnosis. So making sure you're not, your imaging isn't too outdated. And markers within what, about two weeks? Is that kind of what you shoot for? Yeah. Have I done it before with markers at four weeks? Sure. But two weeks is ideal. Okay. So maybe as we're talking about imaging now, we can get a bit into stage two land as well. So these are going to be nodes, masses confined to the retroperitoneum. Just kind of first pass. Are you looking at the short axis, the long axis, craniocaudal, taking a look at all bits of information? Does that impact anything here? As far as the size of the lymph node and what you're thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, I think Tim and I both probably gravitate towards axial imaging, but we'll look through the other. I know there was an abstract years ago now by Chris Sweeney 
looking at this craniocaudal measurement and it did predict, uh, I can't remember what the outcome was, whether it was relapse, I think it was maybe relapse on surveillance, but it was, it was meaningful if that was over a centimeter, even though the short axis was less than a centimeter. I don't get too excited about that, but certainly the short axis measurements are going to be what drives decisions and ultimate size of lymph nodes and things like that. I would echo the sentiments on using the axial dimensions. And part of that is we're heavily influenced by Larry Einhorn's impression. As far as how he manages those, he's, he's very much focused on the axial dimensions and dismisses the cranial caudal for right or wrong. Okay. So maybe as we, as we kind of start thinking about before we move on to stage two, for the stage one B, walk me through like your patient counseling, if they're motivated towards surgery, what can you expect? We've talked a little bit about the risk of disease. Ostensibly, these are going to be high-risk patients, about a 50% chance of finding something. But these are the risks, retrograde ejaculation, ascites, hernias, obstruction, et cetera. What's kind of your patient counseling like? So I think retrograde ejaculation, I mean, we have data from Indiana that, I mean, stage 1B, you're probably going to do bilateral nerve sparing or unilateral template with bilateral nerve sparing. And that data out of here is there's about 99% of people will have normal ejaculation. If you don't save the nerves on one side, the side you're doing, but save the other, it goes down to, I think, 97%. I can't remember exactly, Tim, or that overall it was 97 or something like that. So I don't think for stage 1B that retrograde ejaculation is a large risk. It's obviously a small risk, but not, not anything substantial. Bowel obstructions for these clinical stage one disease, I don't remember the last bowel, true bowel obstruction. I mean, most of these patients are going to go home in about two days, three days. We honestly, I don't know the hernia rate. They happen, but I don't know what that rate is. Obviously, the larger the patient, I think the little bit higher the risk of hernia. Blood transfusion with this operation in stage one, I don't remember a stage one patient that we've had to give a transfusion to. Well, I think maybe one of the more relevant side effects is just the risk for lymphatic leaks and societies, And we would quote universally a 1% risk in this context. I think that's somewhat relevant in keeping that data in front of everybody, especially as we start seeing more and more minimally invasive approaches to this, because with pneumoperitoneum, you lose that ability because the lymphatic system is low pressure. So the pneumoperitoneum suppresses that ability to visualize that leak and identify it. And so if you look at some of the data out there, their Kyla Society's rates in early stage primary RPLNDs perform minimally invasively up to 30%. There are people who also quote, you know, less than 5% rates, but they're all higher than what you see with open. And it's one of the main limitations that you see with those approaches. So keeping that understanding what those differences are between open versus minimally invasive approaches, I think is important. Yeah. I mean, Clint, it seemed like you're almost like racking your brain for complications. And I think that's really kind of where we are with modern primary RPLND. That's kind of what I have in, in my head is 1% chance of retrograde ejac or ejaculation, 1% chance of chylus societies, and the rest of it really should be extremely low probability events. I think that sounds totally fair. I'd say one comment that I think all of us see is that people come in and they are seeing you for counseling regarding primary RPLND and they have these, I don't know what websites are going to, but they come in and they see these horrific incisions that go from their throat to their perineum. And they're just assuming that that's what it's going to be. And it's totally not. 
what we're doing in this day and age. It's a very different operation. They're very, I think when you compare the robotic approaches and the port sites that are used and you compare them to a 10 to 12 centimeter incision that we're using just above the umbilicus, it's, there's not a lot of morbidity with it. Yeah. I don't know what website that is, but you are correct. Everybody finds wherever that incision is that was made in 1985 and that's their expectations. A hundred percent. I think that's universal. I've seen it and heard about it that, you know, it's going to be a seven day length of stay and you're going to be filleted open. But I think we're, I think we're beyond that. We'll talk about some of the perioperative pathways here. So for stage two patients, who are kind of your ideal candidates when you're looking at their imaging? Is this solitary nose, less than two centimeters, primary landing zone, and maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, who are the ones that you're like a little bit worried about? I think focality is an issue. So when you see multiple, kind of like a miliary type picture of multiple lymph nodes involved, those are ones you always have a little bit of pause for. I think that the duration of time, if they were on surveillance, is an important consideration. So if they had an orchiectomy 18 months ago and they're presenting with a solitary lymph node in the retroperitoneum, that's almost a no-brainer because they've kind of self-selected them for retroperitoneal-only disease. The primary histology, is there teratoma, is there not teratoma, you know, is it a pure choriocarcinoma, is there somatic transformation in the primary tumor like we talked about before. So those are all things, size is something that falls on the spectrum, the larger the mass, historically the data would suggest the greater chance of systemic progression beyond the retroperitoneum, either to retrochoral, mediastinal, or visceral metastases. So those are the things that I think come to mind when I'm looking at CAT scans mostly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the biggest turnoff for considering RPL and D is going to be multifocal disease. You know, more than a three lymph nodes, I'm starting to get a little less excited. If they've got significant nodal burden outside of the primary landing zone, it's not a contraindication, but I'm starting to think a little bit about atypical patterns of metastases. What about you, Clint? Yeah, I think it's very similar. Multifocal disease with disease outside the landing zone is concerning. Pure embryonal carcinoma with multifocal disease, I think, is the most risky to do. We rarely see pure. I mean, pure choriocarcinoma is pretty rare to see that. I mean, usually those patients are presenting with cannonball lung metastases and HCGs of a couple hundred thousand. But pure embryonal carcinoma with several enlarged lymph nodes, that's a little concerning. We're, we're usually giving chemotherapy to those guys. Sure. Clint, what is the incidence or the number of patients that you've seen over the years where they present with a contralateral metastasis as an isolated evidence of disease? It happens, and I've certainly seen those where, yeah, it's like that's the only site of disease. It happens. It doesn't happen a lot. I can remember five patients, so not many. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe one or two. And what was the incidence of having ipsilateral disease at the time of surgery? Of the ones that we operated on, I have operated on some. I don't remember exactly why. I don't remember the scenario right now, but they usually have disease on the ipsilateral side, I think is what you're getting at. So yeah, just to bring around Aditya's point about disease outside of the primary landing zone, we have seen a handful of patients that come and present with predominantly just a solitary lymph node in the contra. So it's right-sided orc and they've got a periaortic lymph node. You tend to see miliary kind of microscopic disease, why the growth kinetics on one side are different than the other, but you do see that. Now, if you have like vascular anomalies, situs inversus or some other weird vascular 
vena cable duplication, kind of all, all bets are off, but those are also pretty rare circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I think more commonly will be like a right-sided testis cancer patient who's got intradecaval nodes and periaortic nodes with nothing in the pericaval distribution or a periaortic node and then a pericaval node with nothing in the intradecaval is not common, but not unheard of. Okay. So I think we're kind of on the same wavelength there, smaller nodes, primary landing zone. Pelvic nodes, are, is that going to dissuade you from surgery? Obviously, everything depends on a little bit of a scenario, but in general, I think I would say you're going to be a little bit less excited if you have pelvic nodes and retroperitoneal nodes. That being said, I, there is a patient on the seminoma trial with that. It was an interesting scenario. He had retroperitoneal disease and pelvic disease and got sent to us for evaluation. This was obviously pure seminoma. We repeated his scan and the pelvic lymph nodes normalized in the interval and the Richard Peritoneal stayed the same size. And so we put him on trial. And for some reason, I decided to do his pelvic lymph node dissection as well. And that node was positive, as well as the retroperitoneum. And he is five years out without a recurrence, not advocating for doing, doing that on everybody. But I think in general, if you have pelvic nodes with retroperitoneal nodes, you're probably not going to be excited about surgery. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, whether that's a partial immune-related phenomenon or kind of a similar type of blood supply issue, which is a philosophy, I suppose, of burnt out primaries. That is interesting. And it's a good thing you, you didn't just let that one be, assuming it involuted, I think. You also have that aspect of time. You know, what is the time to that recurrence from their initial diagnosis that still comes into play? So yeah, you get an initial CAT scan after an orchiectomy and they've got retroperitoneal and pelvic disease. Most of those people are going to get chemotherapy. But you have somebody that's been on surveillance for two years and then they have something that shows up in the pelvis as an isolated abnormality. You probably operate on those patients. Completely. Okay, so, so we've kind of decided that surgery is going to be the way to go regardless of the context. We've counseled our patients. You know, whenever I review the imaging with the residents and the fellows, I'm in addition to the nodes, you know, really make sure we walk through the relational anatomy of the right renal artery and the left renal vein, just to make sure that it's not duplicated or low where you're going to be getting your intraday cables and end up doing something that you don't want to do. But now we've decided for surgery. So leading up to surgery, sperm banking for everybody? Yes, no? Mm, I don't have everybody's sperm bank. I mean, it kind of depends on what we're doing, right? But no, I don't have everybody do it. I mean, we counsel them about it, right? and say, you know, you can bank sperm. We have obviously places here in Indianapolis. A lot of our patients obviously are coming from outside of Indianapolis. So they're, if they're going to do it, they're doing it where they're coming from, but I don't mandate it for everybody. No, I think it's, it's important to have the discussion about it, just understanding ahead of time that there could be a very small impact on fertility. The good news is, is if for whatever reason that was omitted and they lose ejaculatory function, you can always still harvest sperm from the remaining testicle despite that, but you always want to give them the option. But I would say very few people do it in my experience. And what about high fat meals or anything like that kind of heading into the day of surgery? I do it. I tell them to go get a cheeseburger, go get a big vat of ice cream, steak, whatever. We got St. Elmo's here, so I sent them down the street. They probably owe me a free meal for all the people I send over there. So if anybody from St. Elmo's is listening, I could use a steak. But I think it's very helpful. I find that for people it's not uncommon to see a little bit of chylus fluid that accumulates up over the left renal vein. And 
whether it's a retraction issue, you, you secure those lymphatics, but whether it's a retraction issue that is you're taking the root of the bowel up and away, you, you tear something and it just seeps at the end. But I don't know how many, you can't quantify how many episodes of Kyla Societies it saved you, but it's prominent enough to me that I, I continue to tell people to do that. I was going to say, it seems like a pretty minimally invasive intervention that may help and probably doesn't hurt that much. Yeah, I think out of all of our recommendations that we have for people, that's the one that's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. I personally don't tell everybody to go do that. I think in today's American diet, there's there's enough fat in there. These dudes are scarfing down fatty meals, whether you tell them to or not, like most of America. But I, I don't tell them specifically to go do that. But it, it's certainly not going to hurt any of the patient's feelings to go tell them to have a, a big steak or a big hamburger. I will tell you, Clint. I've never seen anybody so excited when you tell them that, that they need to go eat a high fat meal. They are, they are just beside themselves ec ecstatic because they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get to go, I get to go just totally engorge myself with, with the worst food you could eat. But, uh, they get pretty excited. I, I, I gain brownie points when I do that. I'm uh, sure. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, that's something I am, I'm Switzerland on, man. If you want to do it, go ahead. All right. Fair enough. If that's the extent of our controversy, I think we're on the on a good spot here. <laughs> so, so what about pathways? Are y'all doing any blocks, epidurals, intrathecal morphine, or anything along those lines? Yeah. So this is something we've looked at heavily and changed over the years. We published on this when Adam Calloway was a fellow here, who's now at Case Western. We looked at this, and I would say historically, these patients just got one shot intrathecals, and that was it. I mean, other than you know the kind of standard PCA up on the floor. We still offer the one-shot intrathecals. We are in the process of evaluating IV methadone in the operating room and also the local injections along the incisions, either with liposomal bupivacaine or just plain bupivacaine and trying to get a pretty close to max dose of that in addition to whatever anesthesia is given them. We have been doing kind of the interreg type medication. We actually switched to a, a new one that's cheaper that doesn't seem to matter as far as the outcomes, just to help with blocking any of the bowel mu receptors for uh, opioids. They're getting Tylenol and gabapentin kind of on schedule. We do Toradol on the morning of post-up day one, assuming their kidney function is good. I guess those, those are probably the big things. Sounds about right. Yeah, we're pretty aggressive about Tylenol and Toradol. We haven't gone with the mu opioid receptor antagonists, try to get up and about PTOT, getting them up and about walking clears day of surgery and then advances tolerate. So it sounds pretty similar. Yeah. I think liposomal bupivacaine is kind of a game changer personally. I know sometimes there's issues getting it through insurance though. It's quite expensive. So it sounds like you may have some better luck with that. Well, we, our hospital system has not wanted us to use it because of the expense. And I mean, I kind of push back a little bit. I'd say I've switched to it. I don't know if I've noticed a ton of difference, to be honest. But I, I do think doing something, doing something for sure. Heparin or uh, Lovenox before the case? No, we don't. I don't even give it post-op. I do give them preoperative heparin. And I guess it's major surgery. It's in the context of cancer. Seems like they'd be generally higher risk. But I certainly know that one of the giants in our field, Dr. Scheinfeld, is a pretty anti-DVT prophylaxis guy and said that these young men never get it. But something out there, I suppose. I'd say I'm pretty heavily influenced by Joel's practice in that regard. 
he's kind of, he got in my head. I drank the Kool-Aid in that regard, as far as not using any DBT prophylaxis for the risk of what he would tout as greater risk of lymphatic leaks and Kylie societies. I actually don't know Rich Foster, what his opinion would be as far as another high volume surgeon, historically what they would do, but I'm pretty sure Rich never used it. Yeah, I can tell you he never used it. The only people he used it on were people that came in post chemotherapy. They had had a, some sort of DVT of some sort while getting chemotherapy. He would use it on those patients, but not any other time. No other, not even post chemos if they hadn't had a history of DVTs or PEs. So we've gotten, finally, we've gone to the operation, I suppose. And you mentioned templates a bit earlier. Who are going to be your candidates for modified templates? Are we talking primary or post chemo? All primary. So maybe stage 1B, are those generally going to be templated unilateral dissection? If you find anything intraoperatively that's suspicious, you extend the template. Is that fair or not necessarily? I think that's fair. Something's going to have to surprise you to turn it into a bilateral template that wasn't there on the CT scan recently. I think um, once you start, like Tim was mentioning earlier, you know, the larger the size, you know, you may consider doing a bilateral, but I think for stage, well, we're talking about stage 1B. So yeah, for stage 1B, these are going to be all templates here, unless I guess the only other caveat would be if it was one of these rare embryonorhabdomyosarcomas or Sertoli cell tumors or lytic cell tumors. It's kind of getting out of the wheelhouse of standard germ cell tumors, but a standard germ cell tumor clinical stage 1B, we would, we would do templates for those. Stage 2, clinical stage 2, so some nodes on their scans. Are those bilateral full templates, unilateral extended templates? Seminoma or non-seminoma? Let's start out with non-seminoma. I think the majority of these, if they're unifocal, primary landing zone, I think it's a no-brainer for a template. If you start having any concerns about focality and when you start seeing multiple lymph nodes, I mean, here's the problem. Like, there's, there's so many nuances with this disease that it's it's very hard to be algorithmic about it. Like, for instance, if I have an interior cable lymph node that sits right at the junction with that pre-aortic space, I may sneak over a little bit and do an extended full bright template and take some of the per upper periaortics. So I think it's hard, but if you have something that's pre-cable and you're taking all the interior cables, I don't think that you run much of any risk and the long-term data would suggest that these patients all do as well as bilateral template patients, you know, with 15 year data. So yeah, I think a lot of these, there's always going to be little things that are in our head that when we're doing these that are going to trigger an expansion of the template contralateral or even towards the pelvis in some circumstances like Clint had with his patient. But I think for the majority, at least at our institution, they're getting templates. Perfect. And so now, you know, you're kind of walking through, we talked about fairly small incisions, 10, 12 centimeters, typically super umbilical, maybe just below, I guess, if they're obese or if, you know, they got a short distance from their xiphor to their umbilicus, it's a bit of tighter working space. You reviewed the anatomy, the vessels and so forth. Surgical techniques, do you divide lumbars and control them for all of these patients? I had a, there was a, a quick response to that. I, I'm going to keep it PC. But yeah, that's, that's the operation, right? I mean, you have to mobilize the great vessels to do it well, in, at least in my opinion. So I think we're dividing lumbar arteries, we're dividing lumbar veins, for sure. Yeah, when you look at data, Jim McKiernan, I think, published some of the data from Sloan Kettering back in the day. And then we more recently have published our data looking at 
reoperative RPLND and, and the most common indicators for needing a reoperative RPLND were lack of division of lumbar vessels at the initial operation as one of the main predictors for that. And so I think if you don't do that, you run the risk of leaving disease in that retrocable or that retroaortic space and there's notes there. So if you don't do it, you're putting the patient at some risk. So you talk about a therapeutic operation, you got to do it right. Totally agree. And it's outside of the scope of this, but I feel like you define what your operation should be and how to best do that and make sure that however you approach it doesn't compromise on any of those principles. I think another one that I always harp on is delicate tissue handling. You know, if they've got a clinical node, I'm, I'm pretty neurotic about not grabbing it, not rupturing it, not doing anything along those lines. And I actually think that's probably part of the reason that we've seen some atypical patterns of metastases and so forth in the minimally invasive experiences where you've got really technically skilled surgeons that may kind of treat this like prostate cancer more so than testicular cancer opinion. I'll agree. I'm not here to start talking about indications for robotic surgery, but I think that I do the exact same thing when I have a tumor. And I think, honestly, when you start talking about risks, when you're in the primary setting and you have an enlarging lymph node, active viable germ cell tumor is there in a high incidence of those patients. So that's also the patients that you have the greatest risk of disseminating disease locally through disruption of the tumor if you're not handling it properly. So when I have these circumstances, the first thing I do is I take the mass out. And once the mass is out, then I determine whether nerve sparing ipsilaterally is feasible. And then I do my rest of my dissection. So I'm very diligent about that being the first thing that I do. So when I was kind of thinking about this, the things that I typically talk to the residents about or the fellows about are delicate tissue handling, make sure you control your lumbars, complete mobilization, understand that relational anatomy so you don't bag a lower pole artery or something along that line, you know, identification of critical structures, and then lymphostasis. So I typically use a combination of clips and the ligature device, and then whether it's data-driven or not, I'll typically use a tissue sealant like Vista Seal or Tiss Seal at the end of the case, and then reapproximate the posterior peritoneum as one final bit to ostensibly keep the retroperitoneum somewhat retroperitoneal. Anything ab above that that you all are, you know, that's a part of the July 1st is upon us, new fellow, here's the things that, you know, if you don't do them, you're going to observe the next five RPLNDs? I think one of the things that when you start taking somebody through this operation, whether it's a chief resident, a new fellow, whatever, one of the things that I think you have to realize that the flow of lymphatics is caudal to cranial. And you have to realize that you're dealing with these channels that follow the venous circulation back towards the heart. And you have to isolate them proximally. You have to isolate them distally and, and secure them, whether it be up over the renal vein or down along the iliacs. Or else down low, you'll get a lymphocele. Up high, you'll get societies. And so the other thing is, is when you are manipulating, you bring up being delicate with the tissues. You can create a lot of shearing forces on those lymphatics if you're not careful with how you're securing them. And it may not be a tear in the lymphatic in your field. It's going to be maybe higher up, up near the tail of the pancreas, up near along the root of the SMA, where you have these lymphatic leaks that are technically out of your field. So I'm always really trying to get into the residents and the fellow's head about trying to be delicate and atraumatic when you're ligating and dividing these lymphatics. Yeah, I think that's absolutely mandatory. I mean, that packet over there by the IMV, you know, that's a thick one. And if you were accidentally avulsed that, you know, that could 
lead to some issues. IMAs, typically sparing those, I suppose, in uh, primary or, or as if it's got to go low threshold? If it's a bilateral template, I take them. If it's unilateral template, preserve them. I don't routinely flip the colon back and forth. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, I guess that's also one of those things like when you do enough, if they've got a long intra-abdominal aorta, the bifurcation is low and the IMA sits low, you can pretty much get into the periodic space pretty well. If not, it's a bit more of a challenge to get over there whether it's flipping the colon back and forth. But that's good to know. And um, of course, there's redundant blood supply. Yep. What about post-operative diet? You know, there's always a little bit of this and that about low-fat diets, etc. Do you all do that or not do that? I find that we get the most questions about this. I mean, we get a lot of questions, right? But I, I feel like Tim was talking about earlier, everybody finds the guy on the internet with the incision that's 100 feet long. Everybody reads that you got to have no fat in your diet. I actually don't know what Tim does, but I am probably more loose than, than most. And that probably came from Rich Foster trained me to do this predominantly. And he was very lax on people. You, I mean, obviously you don't want to go people to go back home and use their pre-op diet that Tim's giving them steaks at St. Elmo's. But uh, <laughs> I haven't been very prescriptive about this amount of fat this day, this amount of fat this week. It's very general, I guess, is how I would counsel them. Don't go back and eat pizzas and hamburgers every night when you get home. Not that they'll be able to really tolerate that that early, but I personally am probably more lax definitely than the internet. Does that sound about right, Tim? Yeah, I was influenced quite a bit by Rich Foster regarding that issue. It's one of those things, there's, there's no data to suggest that a low-fat diet prevents Kyla societies. I think that you could argue that a lower-fat diet probably will allow them to recover a little bit better instead of going to a steady diet of St. Elmo's and, and cheeseburgers. But just because there's so much sort of upset stomach that comes along with the, the initial post-operative period. So if you can stick to starch your meals and, and things that are a little bit lower fat, I think that it may be better for settling. I don't think it impacts the rate of Kyla societies because the rate's so infinitely low in this operation in the primary setting anyway. I don't think that we're preventing Kyla societies by doing it. I'll say, if anything, I mean, all that being said, I do feel maybe, I mean, there are certainly some patients don't care. They're just going to, they're going to eat whatever sounds good to them. But there, there is a subgroup of patients. They, I feel like they would benefit from, you should do this on week one. You should do this on week two. They like, they want some of that. They want that information. Maybe we should give them something like that, but we've been very, uh, very general, I think in our recommendations. Yeah, actually, I think you're probably totally onto something, Clint. I mean, I always tell my patients that, you know, at noon, take a thousand milligrams of Tylenol. At four, take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. At eight, go back to the Tylenol. Not because I think that that's like absolutely critical and mandatory. I think something prescriptive sometimes is empowering to patients. And I personally, you know, if they're obese, will sometimes, whether it's primary or post chemo, just tell them to stick with the low fat diet as a general health thing, not so much kind of ascites based. Yeah. So open incision, typically no heavy lifting, no strenuous activity, four to six weeks after that, kind of auto-regulate, do your thing. Is that about what you all would recommend? Yeah, I do six weeks of nothing, no heavy lifting, more than 10 pounds, then just resume as tolerated. What about the return of ejaculatory function? We'll get to the post-op visit, you know, they're feeling good, all that. Do you expect that they would have return of ejaculatory function, you know, within 
a couple of days or the first time they engage in something or can it take some time? That's where the template comes into play. So if they've had a template and you're excluding the contralateral nerves, there's no neuropraxy on those nerve roots, those postganglionic fibers, and a lot of them have no effect on their ejaculatory function, even if you've spared or not spared ipsilateral nerves. If you do a bilateral template, then I tell all of those patients they're likely to have loss of ejaculatory function during that time period that will recover over a period of six to 12 months. And I had one patient that I did nerve sparing on. It took him 18 months to recover for whatever reason, but eventually returned to normal. But there will be a difference in what they experience based upon the templated dissection that you do. Fair. Clint, anything to add on top of that? Yeah, it was 100% agree. This completely is determined on how you do the operation. So if you do a templated surgery where you spare both sides, they're not going to have any loss of ejaculatory function or delay in return. Even if, like Tim said, if you, even if you take the nerves on the templated side you're doing, they're going to have no delay for the most part because you stayed away from the other side. The ones who have some delay are going to be the where you bilateral nerve sparing, you manipulated both sides and put some tension on them and, you know, getting all the lymphatic tissue around them. They're the ones that's going to have a delay. And I agree, it's usually six or 12 months if there is going to be a delay. And then, of course, there's the pathology report. So, Maybe we'll start with the low-hanging fruit, pathological N1s. I mean, of course, you guys had a really nice paper out on this recently, but just practically getting into it, pathological N1s or any of those patients even being counseled towards adjuvant chemotherapy? Nope. Well, and N1s, I mean, we're not the only one. I mean, obviously, Memorial's got the paper out that those guys do excellent as well. So there's plenty of data for N1s. They don't need chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting after a good surgery. N2s? So N2s is where it becomes more controversial, right? That was one of the big points of this paper that we just put out. We think that two cycles of chemotherapy after surgery is over-treating a good majority of people. And that's what, that's what the recent paper showed that's coming out in JCO. And is that EP or BEP if you were to decide for something adjuvant? EP times two or BEP times two? What's your all's preferred adjuvant regimen? It would be BEP times two. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at Memorial, you know, they've got a case series of about 100 patients. And Tim, I don't know if it was any different when you were there, but we generally were pushed towards a paper by Conda Gunta and company that suggested that EP times two was a decent option. Strong opinions or medical oncology patient specific? But if I recall, the issue is that N2 and N3 patients are sort of lumped together in that process as far as the risk factor, that 50% chance of relapse after primary surgery in those patients. And so if that's all the only data that you have, not stratifying them into subgroups, then you're, you're going to wind up over-treating so many patients. And the data that's coming out shows that in patients that have pathologic N2 disease, we're over-treating 85% of these patients with adjuvant chemotherapy. And, and in this context, you know, we're not dealing with, you know, circumstances 20 years ago where we didn't fully understand the long-term risks of chemotherapy. Any chemotherapy should be avoided if it's unnecessary. And when you're over-treating the majority of those patients that are N2 pathologically, which is what our data is showing, then it's the first data that would say that it's reasonable to consider it. It doesn't mean that you're wrong by giving adjuvant chemotherapy for N2 patients. In N3, you could certainly argue there's a strong reason to consider it. But we're over-treating a lot of patients. Um, and that data, when it came time to, that was one of the things when we were doing the AUA guidelines, 
and trying to figure out what the indication should be for adjuvant therapy. There really wasn't any good data at the time to say that surveillance is acceptable. And so the guidelines reflect adjuvant chemotherapy, but hopefully over time that'll change. I thought it was a great paper. And I mean, I think generally the field is absolutely shifting towards we're trying to really stick to monotherapy, avoiding dual therapy in these early stage cases. Do you feel like, you know, getting to the weeds a bit, you know, a smaller node with extra nodal extension, is that any different than four to five nodes? Does that impact things much? Or generally, if you you were in there, you felt good, you cleaned things out. I think that also counts for something as well. You know, if they're rounded nodes that really weren't adherent. I mean, even going back to the preoperative imaging, if you see this like miliary or encasing type of nodal packet, like that's not somebody that I think anybody's too keen on operating on. But any of the substratification for N2, does that really factor in or not really? I don't think so. I mean, I extra nodal extension, we, it wasn't reported consistently enough for us to be able to comment on it. And so not this, you know, we don't have data to really say strongly. I mean, I think we can have an opinions whether we think it matters or not, but we just couldn't pull it out of our data set with pathology. I mean, I guess we could have had our pathologist go back and try to look at slides, you know, in old patients, but we didn't do that. And it wasn't in all the reports. So it certainly could be a factor, could be something that could be looked at in the future to kind of further substratify patients, but not quite there yet. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, you can look at extranodal extension across a variety of different diseases and it portends a worse prognosis, bladder cancer, penile cancer, among others. But I've had reports where there was extranodal extension, you know, in somebody with pure teratoma. I worry zero about that patient having a local recurrence because they had extranodal extension and increasing the risk for a relapse. So there's no data to support one way or the other, but it's not unreasonable to study going forward. That's for sure. Right. And I think even like, you know, the N3 patients, granted, it was a relatively smaller subset, which you probably expect in terms of patient selection, but, you know, a 5.2 centimeter pure teratoma, that's N3, but they're probably going to be just perfectly fine. Or maybe there was some compelling indication or contraindication for certain chronic kidney disease, polycystic kidney disease, whatever for your N3s. And if you go in there, having done a good operation, the limited data from Mural's paper would suggest that they're probably still okay to watch. Yeah. And we would, we would watch those patients within three disease that are, you know, just large teratomatous masses. We would not offer any adjuvant therapy for those patients. Sure. And are there patients that you're actually leaning towards adjuvant, adjuvant therapy that have nodal disease? I mean, if they have 24 out of 28 nodes or something terrible like that, that kind of came out of the blue, I suppose, yes. Or maybe just let them declare themselves because they're probably going to require good risk-directed chemotherapy in short order. Who are the patients, I guess, that you're actually leaning towards adjuvant therapy? I think that's probably it. I mean, we've certainly had patients that have had double-digit positive nodes, you know, most of those being microscopic in nature. But in that group of patients that we gave adjuvant chemotherapy to, none of them had recurred. So I think that it's for the ones that get it, I think two cycles is usually enough. Now you could argue were they cured with the surgery, you don't know because you gave them two cycles of chemotherapy, but it, you know, the ones that were given two cycles, it seemed to be enough to treat if there was microscopic disease, it took care of it. So I think double digit nodes positive. I think that's, we're probably going to offer adjuvant chemotherapy to them in three disease in this paper we've been talking about. They seem to do similarly, actually, to the N1 group, but but it was a small group of that N3 patient, so it's hard to say for sure. And then afterwards, you do you get a post-operative CT scan four months, six months down the way, and if that's clean, are they free from abdominal imaging? 
Or do you periodically image the retroperitoneum? So with positive nodes, I think we would continue to image the retroperitoneum. If you did a stage one patient or a stage two and it turned out everything was negative, you wouldn't necessarily need to repeat abdominal imaging. But with positive nodes, we tend to continue with uh, abdominal imaging. And then, Tim, you'd mentioned earlier for seminoma patients receiving primary pill and D that you maybe suggested that you would consider a bilateral fold template. Am I reading too much into this? Yeah, we don't know. That's the problem. So I think if we say that bilateral templates are reasonable, it's by default because we don't have good data to understand the exact metastatic pattern. It's not like we have 40 years of data for stage one and two non-seminomas that have been operated on to see what the pattern of relapse is through mapping studies. We just don't have that with seminoma. But over time, we'll learn more and we'll be more thoughtful about who we do templates on and who we don't. But I think at this time and Early on, I thought we applied similar approaches as what we do for non-seminoma as far as criteria for templates. And we got both Clint and I both have been burned with isolated patients. But we go to, Clint would argue that we've now gone to bilateral templates for a lot of these patients and we're seeing no contralateral disease and we're over-operating on them. So it, it may have been just a few patients that were, that kind of were throwing off our early experience and pushing us towards bilateral templates for those, but we may, over time, as we get more data, go back to templates for selected patients. I think one of the things, and Clint can comment on this, is the timing of that relapse again. We talked about that earlier in different circumstances, but some of the data from our recent abstract at the AUA and eventually it will be published, we'll be looking at the pattern of relapse with those patients based upon the timing of their retroperitoneal disease from initial orchiectomy. Yeah, and in the paper that was recently in JCO, I think in your all's seminoma surgical experience, very impressive, 70 patients or so, if I recall correctly. It seems like if there is a relapse that typically those patients are going to be treated with chemotherapy. Are there scenarios where you go back in, you know, if they had a pelvic recurrence or a contralateral retroperitoneal recurrence and RPLND part two? I think it has to be the right scenario. I don't think you can say you'd never do it. But I think it's going to be more often chemotherapy than surgery, I would say. It also depends on timing, right? I mean, if somebody has a relapse, an isolated relapse, two years down the road, maybe be more excited about reoperating on that patient versus someone who recurs at the four-month CT scan. But I, th I think the majority will wind up being treated with chemotherapy unless you fall into that right scenario where more surgery makes sense. Yeah, I had one patient who about 16 months after his initial RPLND developed an obturator lymph node. And it was bizarre enough where I actually thought that, you know, surgical sampling and both the diagnostic and therapeutic procedure kind of made sense and something we do all the time for prostate and bladder and so forth. And it turned out to be seminoma and we kept an eye on him and he's about two years out disease-free. Well, one thing that's become more and more obvious over the course of the conversation is that it's hard to have algorithmic approaches here and, and the nuances, the patient considerations, the imaging, the markers, the synthesis of all of this is the experience, the teams is what really leads to, to best outcomes. And as we approach an hour, maybe I would just ask you all to give some parting thoughts to the leadership as we wind it down. I mean, you summed it up right there. I mean, as much experience as, as we're able to get here at Indiana, I mean, we, we don't have it all figured out. Before you jumped into this little wrap-up thing, I was going to tell you about a time, you know, we've talked about how experience matters and yeah, we, we do really great at surgery, but well, we also mess up too. And I mean, one example with the seminoma group that we're continuing to learn about is it was a patient that was on surveillance and relapsed. And I don't know 
if you do this, Aditya, but a lot of times, especially Larry Einhorn, he'll get the initial abdominal pelvic CT. And then if they've never had a vasectomy or, or inguinal surgery, he'll just get abdominal CTs alone without pelvic components for these seminoma patients. And I've adopted that approach as well for the most part. And a patient relapsed and is in the primary landing zone with seminoma. We counseled him. Surgery makes sense. He had, I don't know, 1.7 centimeter isolated node. Took him to the operating room, did his surgery. Seminoma, as expected, doing great on surveillance. Brought him back for follow-up CT. And for some reason, I ordered a CT abdomen and pelvis. And in his pelvis, he had a, a lymph node that was enlarged and clearly not normal. And then I look back on his diagnostic CTs. And he had a, a node there that it wasn't greater than a centimeter, but something now in retrospect drew my attention and probably should have went and before we did a surgery, probably got a real additional pelvic CT scan. So takeaway point is you never do too much to, to stop learning and always stay humble with this disease because it'll humble you really quickly, no matter how much of this you're doing. And as Larry Einhorn will tell us all, seems like on a weekly basis, the more he knows about this disease, the less he knows. So I think the important point is it's good to have experience, continue to gain experience, but you got to stay humble with this because uh, it'll do that to you pretty quickly. Yeah, that's profound. I mean, that's coming from ostensibly two people that operate more on testicular cancer patients than anybody in the world. So I definitely appreciate that point of view and 100% I've, I've had my fair share of humbling experiences. So much appreciated. Tim, you've got a few years on both of us. What, what's coming at it from your end? Look at that great beard. I was going to say, you making fun of my gray beard? Is that, is that, uh... <laughs> oh, you have a full head of hair, Tim. I mean, I, I'm jealous. <laughs> hey, listen, just eat at St. Elmo's all the time and you'll be, be fine. <laughs> That's right. If we get you here, Aditya, next time, we got to go to St. Elmo's. That'll, that'll be the deal. You flew in here last time under the cloak of darkness. All right, done. Yeah, I think it's been well summed up. I mean, you can't go down algorithms and just saying, well, this person has this, you got to do this. You have to really understand the biology of the disease. And there's so many nuances, you know, that you have to appreciate. And we don't do it perfectly. I agree with Clint. We, we certainly have made clinical decisions and wish we could have done it differently for, you know, reasons A, B, or C. And it's funny to sit and listen to Larry Einhorn, who's been doing this for 50 years and have him talk about these experiences where he understands the more he sees the less he understands but it is what it is it's a rare disease and i think you know we can talk about you know centralization of care but if you understand the disease you just have to incorporate those those principles and make sure you're doing what's right for the patient all right guys well hey thanks again and uh you know i appreciate your time heading on into the evening Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson. Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vedavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.